Oh, look at us in sync. We're killing it. We're killing it already, George. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a really exciting one. He's a director, a podcast producer, a writer for shows including Craig of the Creek, She-Hulk, and Robot Chicken, and one of the hosts of the Dark Weeb podcast, Cody Ziegler, is here. How's it going, man? Yo, thanks. First of all, I want to say, out of all the podcasts I've done, you got to be at top five as far as like nailing all of the like the resume that I've done. <laughs> because I don't, I don't remember you actually ever asking me. So like, it's very nice that like you like you use Google and yeah, uh, do, do a little research. <laughs> yeah, I very much appreciate it. From one podcast producer to another. I very much appreciate it. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Well, uh, one thing that I could not find on Google was your history with the horror genre. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about like if it's something you watch a lot of, when you got started, that kind of thing. Yeah. Dude, I mean, it's uh, I, I've watched it forever. Like Growing up, like so I lived next door to my... I was lucky enough to live next door to my aunt and uncle and cousins. And my um, aunt and uncle were huge horror fans. Like... We would go like they're the couple that would go to like the local movie store back when we had those, and when our movie store had like an actual horror section that was like a haunted house. Like, oh, they, like, that's awesome! The employees <laughs> built like this like spooky like house type thing. And they had everything in there, like like all the like OG Peter Jackson movies. Oh, nice! Return of the Living Dead, like basically any like direct video B film, like B horror film, they had those there. And that was my introduction to like Night of the Living Dead, like nice. all that series, like the Extro series. Like, wow, the one other person who knows Extro. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I love that movie so much, and particularly like I love the second one so much because there are tons of Alien Two ripoffs, but like mm. that one is one of the few that it has the charm. And like when you're eight year olds watching that, it's still very frightening. Yeah. So like that was like that was sort of like my. How I cut my teeth watching horror films as a kid, and by watching I mean like cowering in fear as they watched them like in the broad daylight, and I was still terrified of those movies. But like that definitely started, and like just through there, like if I could catch a horror movie on like HBO or Showtime or whatever, I would always do it. And then when I got into like college and um, grad school, film school, like that's how I really got into the horror films. We were lucky enough to have a class. Um, I went to Appalachian State as my undergrad, and um, we had a professor. Shout out Craig Fisher who taught a class specifically on horror wow. um they only offered it in the fall which is a nice touch but like <laughs> we went through everything like we would start off with like the cabin of dr caligari and then we'd go to like fandom or whatever and then we would transition into like more modern day stuff like we'd break down like alien like we'd break down the thing like jason like uh suspiria like all those giallo films like that's we really they really had a great course load and syllabus for that class and like that just latched on like that's everything that i wanted to, to watch as like a you know a 20 year old yeah, that sounds rad as hell. Yeah, it's great. It was it was I was definitely spoiled like watching quality horror films. And that's how it sort of like led to where I am today. Like I'm still a huge fan of paracinema. Like I love exploitation films. I love horror films. I love sci-fi, like Chan Bar, anything that's like weird and new that's a little off kilter. Like I've always been a huge fan of even if I don't necessarily enjoy the movie, like I still I'll still like like, you know, buy the ticket and take the ride. Um I just <laughs> Like, I'm sure you've seen House House or House Who. Yeah. Like, I've always heard about it. Like, it was one of those movies that was, like, always, like, I could never get a copy because this was back, you know, 10 years ago before there was, like, streaming or even, like, real good torrents. And, like, I finally started watching it, like, two days ago. And I was like, 
this is like the craziest, most insane <laughs> movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a wild one. There's a guy like slipping downstairs and like falling into like a bucket, and then like there's weird stop motion, and like there's this mom that comes out of air- nowhere, and like the movie is kind of impenetrable, but it's still such a a wild swing. Like I just appreciate that type of like creative force when it comes to anything. So like. Those movies are right up my alley. So, like, I love that you invited me on this podcast. Thank you for for reaching out. Absolutely. You've really hit on something, which is that of all the genres, sci-fi and horror really are the two that are able to kind of take the biggest swings. Yeah. Because you kind of come into them with more of a suspension of disbelief than, Mm -hmm. you know, just your typical comedies or whatever. Yeah. And so having an audience that is already prepared to accept things being a little weird and surreal and that kind of thing. Yeah. Let's movies like Haosu really just go for it. And it's yeah. definitely not a movie that everyone is going to love, but it's yeah. the kind of thing that will really stick with some people. Yeah, especially when you take into account that this was like like 1976 or 77 yeah, or something yeah. like that. Like the things that, that they, they were doing for this type of stuff, like I couldn't imagine walking in, sitting in into a theater and like watching this <laughs> with like no context. Like I w- my mind would be blown. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a preferred subgenre within horror? Um, you know, it kind of goes back and forth. Like, I think it depends on what year you're hitting me. Like, like three or four years ago, I was really, really into just like any type of weird paracinema. So, like, I was really into Giallo for like a little bit. I was really into like straight to DVD. This early era, like Orion, like oh, Miramax, yeah. like basically just like special effects films. But like, they yeah. had like three dollars to make a movie but i was like Pumpkinhead three yeah i need to watch that <laughs> like those are like my genres and now i've as i've gotten older i've been really into uh it's one of the reason i i picked get out is that like i've been really into like these highly stylized sort of surreal like sort of psychedelic adjacent movies like i'm a huge have you seen phase four the, the, the no, the, it's the ants one, right? Yeah, I yeah. I saw them, and I meant to yeah. get to Phase Four, and I just I didn't get to it yet. But great, great double feature. I love yeah. them too. Like I remember watching that on like TNT Monster Vision, <laughs> whatever they, that that program was. But yeah, like yeah. being like seven and terrified of these giant cardboard <laughs> ants, and my dad just like roasted me because they looked so <laughs> fake. But them like or Phase Four is like. It's such an interesting movie because it, it was directed by Saul Bass, the famous designer or whatever. Right. It's his only, like, narrative film. And they do this, to those who don't know, the movie is about, like, these hyper-intelligent ants that, like, gain, like, telekinetic powers or whatever. Hell yeah. And they take over the world. But they do this really interesting, he shoots it in a very interesting way where, like, he does a lot of these extreme close-up of the ants, and you end up almost giving them personalities which is a strange thing to think oh, about when you're cool. considering no one thinks of ants and individual like mm-hmm. when it comes to, like insects and stuff and they have these strange psychedelic moments following this like ant through this calling as it does its thing and you see how it's setting up this trap to like kill these scientists and it's very weird and very surreal and you're like this is i, I couldn't imagine making this in like 1974 like yeah what was this guy doing and like off of that like jumping towards like like Ex Machina, which is more sci-fi, but there's some like so very very horrific things that happen in that, and like what was that Scarlett Johansson under the skin, like those that type of like 
just just aesthetic. Like I just like <laughs> aesthetic in my movies now. Like hell yeah, I love um, Beyond the Black Rainbow. It's like one of my like top five movies. It's an almost impossible movie to watch. Uh, like when I recommend it to friends, I always tell them you're gonna fall asleep, but it's gonna be worth the ride. So like, that's sort of like the genre that I've been getting into like over the last couple of years. That I've been noticing that like that's been getting my my sort of creating my taste. Like I think if you can if I could pick like a quintessential film that I think speaks to me, it's like Bavarian Sound Studio. Like it's recent, sort of recently made. Uh, it's about like how like a guy that like does the sound effects for a giallo film mm-hmm. but like very interesting soundtrack very interesting use of like colors and like you don't know what's real and what's not and just also just beautifully shot and well acted i think I can't remember the the lead's name toby something but he's like he kills it as like it, it's one of my favorite films and like that's the sort of genre that of horror that i've been like drifting to lately and it's been very fun discovering these new and old films and like get out just it's one of those few mainstream movies that you think it's going to go one way like all right this is like some maybe like a slasher type thing and then as soon as like we'll get into it later but like as soon as that first hypnotist scene happens you're like oh wow yeah we're in a completely different movie right now yeah definitely well first of all let me say that that uh bavarian sound studio movie sounds awesome and i'll definitely check it out but yeah let me know man like i think you'd really dig it just from this the few minutes we've been chatting i think it'd be right up your alley yeah it sounds like it and i, I agree that Part of what Get Out does so well is that sort of subversion of what you're expecting. But mm-hmm. it's not a subversion like just to be like, hey, we got you. It's subvert. It's like it's all working towards something. Yeah. That the subversion just makes it that much more effective. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. So uh, like you said, we're talking about 2017's uh, smash hit Get Out, written and directed by Jordan Peele. I'm so excited to finally get to this one because Jordan and his work oh, have come up a lot uh, as like a reference point for a watershed oh, wow. moment in horror. Mm-hmm. But it's always been just as like we're talking about something else. So finally, we get yeah. to really dig into it. Um, <laughs> and beforehand to the audience, I'll say that. Usually spoilers come up like as we're going, but as far as I'm concerned, even in the context discussion, I'm going to be spoiling stuff. So if you haven't mm-hmm. seen this one yet, freaking get to it because it's really, yeah. really amazing. And so mm-hmm. go watch it and then come back to this. But I digress. So Jordan Peele, he wrote this movie during the uh, Obama administration and what he mm-hmm. refers to as the post-racial lie. And the film's, even the title pulls double duty here because (laughs) it it refers both to what the audience members yell at the screen during horror movies, but also specifically to roadside signs directed towards black people about leaving sundown towns by sunset. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, I didn't know before Get Out and looking into it, sundown towns are all white neighborhoods in the in the U.S. that enforced restrictions excluding non-white races, but black people in particular, through a combination of uh, local laws, intimidation, and violence. And while official sundown towns ended in the 60s, I mean, there are how many suburbs and small towns uh, effectively continue this just through yeah. systemic means? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I even just the, the suburb that I grew up, I mean... Moving to Philly from the suburb I grew up in was such a huge difference. I, I mean, it's it's crazy yeah. just how these like white flight towns just kind of crop up everywhere. Yeah. And as far as uh, Jordan Peele himself, he before this movie came out, he was primarily known as a comedy guy, uh, working on shows like Mad TV, mm-hmm. Key and Peele. Were you already a fan of his going into this movie? Yeah, I was a big fan. Like, cause I I moved out to L.A. like. Right when Key and Pill was like blowing up, and like I was doing some stuff in the UCB, so like I always knew someone that knew them or was like sort of tangentially like friends with them. So I was like, 
it was just great seeing like two black performers crushing it because like you right. very rarely saw that. But one of the biggest things that shocked me is that like I you know you would have thought that you know just from their from their resume that they would do like Keanu made sense you know genre wise like oh they're comedy guys they're gonna make comedy movies like when I heard that Jordan Peele was like actually sort of more of like a sci-fi thriller horror dude like I was very interested to see what they would make I thought maybe they'd be like a Edgar Wright like oh they'll do they'll do a Shaun of the Dead type thing or they'll do right. like an invasion of the body snatchers with a comedy twist like I did not expect it to be a straight up horror film yeah. horror thriller so it's very interesting seeing the trajectory oh I personally also expected something very similar where I I, I mean this has comedic moments in it but it's not a comedy at all. For sure. It is very much just a, a serious yeah. movie written by someone who is able to write funny people. And and none of the jokes yeah. in it feel out of place. Like sometimes in a, in a horror comedy, it can mm-hmm. be really hard to kind of strike that tone, uh, the balance there. And this yeah. just does such a great yeah. job of, of keeping the focus on the horror side and, and not making jokes feel out of place. Peel himself has said that he feels that horror and comedy are similar in that so much of it is about pacing, so much of it hinges on the reveal, and that mm-hmm. he feels comedy gave him something of a training for the film. And I'm curious if you agree about this sort of mirror yeah. image of horror and comedy. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge horror fan. Like, I've only written mainly comedy stuff professionally. Um, but when it comes to like pacing, it's so true. Like, you know, the, the sort of golden rule the shows I've written on anyway is that like you you want to get like you know three jokes minimum per page which can I don't know if, if you're not initiated or like not a, a writer or understand how that works is like you really do have to pace things out because you, you want to have like this constant momentum of like the story is going on like these characters are doing these things like there's an arc or whatever but you don't want to like front load and have too many jokes and like you'd be like like you said you're like oh we're having a serious conversation let's completely right. you know erase everything that we've talked about to get out this simple joke or you don't want to like have too many jokes to where, or you don't want to have it be too serious. So like, when it comes to like the the idea of the reveal, like I definitely see that that one to one because the setup punchline is like, are we revealing this thing? And like the punchline is like, yeah. what is like the big reveal, right? The only, the only the inverse is like he's doing horror. I I cannot wait to see what this guy does further down the line. Like he's already had two great films out, and like I know that he he's doing um i haven't got a chance to watch is he doing the twilight zone is that that's the reboot right he's producing it i don't know how much he's actually writing or directing on it but mm. it certainly seems that he's had some influence i only saw the first season so far but yeah i'm um surprised that this is like his lane right mm. it seems like this is almost like the comedy stuff was almost like a trojan horse yeah. it was like yeah i'm funny and i can do voices and stuff but like what i really want to make are these like thriller horror adjacent sci-fi weird stories and like you know a lot of people that you know get their big break you see what they want to make it's like oh i'm going to make uh like a superhero movie i'm going to make this big franchise tv show and instead he was like i want to revive this series from the 60s uh this anthology series from the 60s that i don't know how many people this age (laughs) our age are actually going to watch and like he did it and like from what I'm hearing, he's he's crushing it. Yeah. I hear that it's a really good series. Yeah, I mean, I really like the first season, and the second season has a lot of really great talent behind it. I know that mm. um, uh, Benson and Moorhead, who wrote The Endless, which also came out in 2017, uh, mm. they have um, a, a, a episode in there as well. But, yeah, it's his seeing what he is able to do now that 
studios are giving him mm-hmm. the money to actually do it, I, I think is really yeah. exciting. It's it's funny looking back at some of the comedy stuff and sort of seeing it sort of simmering under the surface there. Yeah, yeah, because when it was one of the, the big things that set Kill, uh, <laughs> Kill, Jordan and <laughs> Keegan, Key and Peel. that's the name of the comedy <laughs> series. The thing that really set that apart was that, you know, their sketches would look like legitimate scenes from, like, genre films. Yeah. So, like, if you were just, like, someone just slipping through the channel, you're like, oh, what is this sci-fi alien movie that I'm watching right now? Or what is this political thriller? <laughs> like, very, only their very early sketches looked like, you know, traditional comedy sketches. Yeah. Like, they really found their niche, and it really worked for them. Yeah, and uh, even his fandoms definitely started, uh, started to come out. Uh, one of my favorite Key and Peele sketches was the Gremlins 2 sketch, where he like comes into the writer's room, and they're like, all right, we need yeah. to start coming up with different Gremlins, and he's just <laughs> saying yes to everything. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I totally agree with him that the joy of these movies is like seeing what you can get away with in them and, yeah. and make feel like they're a realistic part of the movie, and so... Yes, just looking back and sort of seeing sort of the breadcrumbs that led him mm-hmm. to this place, I, I think is really interesting. And Yeah, 100% agree. And speaking of uh, Key and Peele, Keegan-Michael Key, who was his comedy partner, mm-hmm. was actually the one who introduced him to producer Sean McKittrick, who is the producer of Get Out. Oh, wow. Yeah, Key was filming a movie down in New Orleans with him, and he was like, you got to meet Jordan. He's a horror fanatic. He's got all these ideas. Mm-hmm. And so when Sean met with him, he was so impressed by the pitch story of Get Out that he bought it right at the table. And Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, and Peel had his first draft just two months later. So <laughs> really moving was right He was waiting for it, yeah. <laughs> the movie features an incredible cast as well, including yeah. Daniel Kaluuya, Catherine Keener, Bradley Whitford, Lakeith mm-hmm. Stanfield, who, I mean, he doesn't have a huge part in this movie, but he is so, He's so, so good, good in it. it. There's, um, there's that, that intro scene where it's just him walking down the street and, um, so Kato Blandry Jones pulls up in the car and he's like, he just is like, he just literally turns around. And he's like, hell no, you're <laughs> oh, going to catch today, me napping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that is one of the realest things that I've ever heard seen in a movie where I'm like, I have definitely been in those moments where I'm like. I'll just hear something in the bushes and I'll immediately be like, nope, not today. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and turn around, <laughs> go right back to my house. Yeah, it, he's he's so great. And, and and you mentioned Caleb Landry Jones. He's in it mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Lil Rel Howery is great. Oh, God, so good. So, so good. And Stephen Root, Betty Gabriel, and Allison mm-hmm. Williams sort of round out the cast there. Yeah. Allison Williams, I want to talk about this role for a second because yeah. – She's said in interviews that she was looking for a role that would weaponize the things that people take for granted about her. Mm, and mm-hmm. that to this day, a lot of people sort of misinterpret the motivations of her character, Rose. Yeah. I, I was reading this quote where she was talking about how a lot of white people find it really hard to j- accept that Rose is evil. Yeah. And they come up to her and they're like, she was hypnotized, right? And it's like, she says, no, she's just evil. How hard is <laughs> yeah. that to accept? Uh, yeah. She's bad. We gave you so many ways to know she's bad. <laughs> like, the minute that she can, she she slips back into this sociopathy and yeah. they're like, maybe she's still a And she's like, no. And she says it's 100% white people who say that to her, which is unsurprising. Yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's it's really an interesting role that, that she She's looking for for her first feature film. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's great. There's a lot to. Un- I mean, there's this movie is so dense. It's like a just a big old 
pulled pork sandwich. There's so much <laughs> to, see, to see in it. But like one of the things that like, you know, it, it even got me off guard when I was watching that final end when she's like looking for the keys. Like, I can't find the keys. Where are the keys? <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. She's been hypnotized, too. And then like, wait yeah. a minute. Nope. The whole point of this character is that like we're going to forgive her because she has she is a white woman. And like, yeah, the, 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 the whole thing. Yeah, like the whole subtext is that like, yeah, even no matter how much how woke we think we are, how much we know what's going on, like we still have these institutionalized systematic things that cultural like things that are ingrained in us that we can't see this lady who literally shoot tries to shoot <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya multiple times and we're like, you know, I bet that she's probably just hypnotized. It couldn't be that she's nope. an evil <laughs> racist lady, liberal yeah. racist lady. It's it's really crazy. I mean, what a heel turn. It's just incredible to see her turn on a dime like that. Yeah. Um, and especially going go I I just rewatched it today and having, you know, know what's going going on and you know what the the plot is like going back and watching her performance in particular, seeing how she sets things up and like how she does play into sort of our notions and like of notions of like, you know, the, the fragile white lady and like how they can always like we almost always protect him like even the interaction with like the cop and like how she constantly gaslights Daniel Kaluuya throughout the whole film and like yeah. she plays up and like everything is played off as a joke being like um what was the, what was the one line she was like oh yeah the groundskeeper must like me like just like little <laughs> things like that that having that when you know when it's going where you're where it's going you're like you really appreciate her performances and the writing so much more yeah yeah, she's it, it's so great at just kind of playing it off, um, mm-hmm. and and it, a lot of it. I mean, I was going to talk about this later, but I'll just talk about it now. A lot of it sort of reminded me of something that is in the movie The Invitation as well, where it's like mm. people seems like it would be even more heightened for black people. This yeah. sort of like trying to keep your head down, not cause any any problems, and mm-hmm. and in The Invitation, it's like it's just awkwardness that they're trying to avoid and it's you're able to relate to even just that and like when it becomes something so much more intense when it's about your life you know Mm -hmm. it's it's easy to see why the character of chris uh, sort of is willing to look past these really intense things yeah you know speaking to that there's one of the things that i really appreciate appreciate about this film is that like if you're a black person and it can sort of be um I'm sure that, like, any person of color that has to deal with, like, interracial dating has dealt with this, too. But specifically for black people and, and black men, like, the very j- from the very jump of the movie when she's like, I didn't tell my parents you were black. You're like, everyone that I've talked to, every black man I've talked to, like, their chest gets tight at that. scene. Yeah. you're like, oh, my God. We've all had those very, like, because you, you're walking in the situations. You're like, I don't know if this parent, are they, like, racist? Are they going to yeah. be cool? Like, what's the deal going to be? So, like, even from the jump, you have this existential dread that like a lot of moviegoers are watching or for you know black male identifying moviegoers are watching where you're like i'm already on edge like i already don't like what's going on right now yeah he's set up this unknown yeah you said this terrifying unknown and then you have these breadcrumbs that all sort of avalanche and snowball down where you're like getting stopped by the cop you're like oh my god i want to do this and then like <laughs> You you get to the estate and you're like all the help is black. You're like I would get out. You're exactly you're like just turn around, dude. Yeah. Turn around, Chris. There are so many red flags. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's so incredible. I I also rewatched it recently and just going into it knowing the way that it pans out. It's incredible how like mm. everything is something. 
Everything yeah, there's, in this movie. Every <laughs> they use every every piece of the buffalo as a friend says, as a yeah. friend of mine says, like nothing is like nothing is just there to make things happen. Everything pays off. Like even a small detail that I just noticed rewatching is that the grandfather, the grandfather slash um, groundskeeper, the the runner, like at the end the, when he shoots himself, like I just noticed that he was wearing like Nike like distance running shoes, and I was like, oh, yeah. that's that's such a small detail that you never would have noticed unless you like. Or rewatching this film and like digesting it and like dis- distilling it down to like its yeah. its most uh, you know surreal or its most basic essence. Yeah, it's really incredible. And he did all of this on just a four and a half million dollar budget, <sighs> which is shocking. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And um, leading up to the release, Jordan said that he was worried about the film's chance of success, saying that. What if white people don't want to come see the movie because they're afraid afraid of being villainized with mm. black people in the in the crowd? And what if black people don't want to see the movie because they don't want to sit next to a white person while a black <laughs> person is being victimized yeah. on the screen? Which I mean, those are very reasonable mm-hmm. fears. I, yeah. I think that just reminds me of a conversation that I had with some friends when Us came out. Where you're like, like from the jump, the movie is very terrifying. From the trailer anyway, you're like, oh my god, like I don't want to watch this very attractive nice family get murdered and like one of my friends was like jordan pill is a black person is like he's going to take care of the black people in the movie meaning that like he he's very well aware that like black people don't want to come and watch themselves get brutalized for you know two hours or whatever so like that's the thing that just made me think when you were mentioning that is like this is also a filmmaker who i think like that seems like something that he would be cognizant of like he would have that fear of like does do like who is this this movie is for like you know, an audience for many different audiences, you know, like it, it has to be like a broad audience, like a global thing because it's through, from through Bloomhouse. So like you want to get their fans in. But then also like it's very, you know, obviously written for like a black, specifically black Americans. And like you don't want to have them come watch a movie where they just get like their ass kicked for yeah. <laughs> an hour and a half. So like <laughs> it's, it's it is like I, I imagine he was going through a lot of stress when it came to like finding that balance, which I think it found beautifully where like you are very stressed out for for chris for most of the movie but what he does that i really appreciate is that in between those moments he'll add in like personally my favorite character rod like just when you're like i don't know if i can watch this man get gaslit by another family again we just bring in a five minute scene with rod he makes everything funny and then like (laughs) we go back to being like you know on the edge of our seat again yeah i I think that it's a lot of it i think has to do with sort of just the lens of how he's coming at it mm-hmm. and i think part of why uh, increasing the diversity behind the camera is so important not yeah. just for people of color but for women as well mm-hmm. because so much of current cinema is from white guys yeah and so when you're watching a movie you come to expect things to work out the way that these white people have mm-hmm. filmed things for years and years and years yeah but when you increase the diversity behind the camera and people are able to bring their stories and their perspective yeah to the to the movies you get these these different balances and people are treated differently mm-hmm. in the movie yeah. as well you know this is sort of this isn't like horror related but it does remind me of your point is like i don't know what your feelings are on comic book movies but like one of the things that really set black panther apart for me is that like majority of behind the scenes department heads were like black women and like if you go online and look up, I think Vanity Fair does this series where they talk about like they'll talk to like directors and they'll break down scenes and stuff, and like they talk to the costume director about like just the costuming, and the, no maybe the production designer about like uh, about how they put together like the different tribes and stuff for Black Panther, and you just see all these like reference they they do such 
a great job of research and the references they have for all these different tribes throughout Africa and like it's things that if it if it was I think if it was just like you know just a random like guy random white guy they definitely would not have done that homework and they wouldn't have this like no this, yeah, yeah yeah they they definitely wouldn't have been like <laughs> referencing river tribes in Central Africa but like it is yeah. interesting like the, that's the first thing I think of when you bring up like the idea of having diverse diversity behind the camera and inclusion is that like you're getting so many different point of views that traditionally mm-hmm. have not been given like the space to talk yeah and I'm happy to say that thankfully this movie did do extremely well yeah despite his fears. It opened up at a staggering $33.4 million. That's crazy. Yeah, right? For a $4.5 million budget. Yeah. And then continued to perform despite going up against other extremely popular movies like Logan and Kong Skull Island came mm. out the next two weeks. And they got crushed. That's so funny. Yeah, and <laughs> horror films tend to have one of the steepest uh, second weekend drops. Yeah. And I'm sure that not a lot of the audience is like paying that much attention to the box office, but usually... Horror movies see about a 60% drop from the first week into the second weekend. Mm-hmm. And Get Out only dropped 15%, <laughs> which is incredible. Yeah, there was a lot of word of mouth when that movie first came out. Like, I remember mm-hmm. everyone that I everyone that I knew was texting me being like, you have to go see Get Out. Yeah, I, I remember the same. And it ultimately, it went on to gross $255.5 million dollars. <laughs> A return of just under 57 times the investment. That is crazy. So. That is That man is set for life. He has like yeah. <laughs> he has a blank check to make whatever he wants to make, and I love that. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's also part of what's so great about horror is that you can do these great, great movies on more of a shoestring yeah. budget. Obviously, it's not always ideal mm-hmm. to, to cut the budget to the bare bones like that. That's where the but innovation comes from, you know? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And in addition to being a success at the box office, Get Out also got all kinds of accolades. Peel is the first black writer-director to cross the $100 million mark with his debut. Mm-hmm. It was the highest domestic grossing film directed by a black filmmaker until Fate of the Furious overtook that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the highest grossing debut based on an original screenplay, which is a huge deal, yeah. beating uh, the Blair Witch's $140.5 million record that oh. had stood for 20 years. <laughs> so... Really just yeah. great job by Jordan. Yeah, congrats, Jordan. I know you don't need to hear it from yeah. us, but like you really killed it. <laughs> yes, this is the commendation that yeah. he was waiting for all it's, along. It's funny that, you know, for four million it really is a beautiful looking movie. Like there's not like the CGI like it works when it works, like the practical mm-hmm. stuff looks good, which I'm always a fan of, of practical effects when they oh, yeah. you can work it in and I love that they were able to work that stuff in and like just you know, if you were to I mean it makes sense because it's a horror film, but like this could eas- this easily looks like a twenty thirty million dollar movie. Absolutely, and that the way that it looks was something that really um, came across in the critical reception as well because people obviously were really impressed by the way he was able to weave this story together. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the movie looks fantastic. Yeah, and the critical reception was great. Mm. Uh, all, I mean. Of course, there were detractors, including Armand White, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a compliment if he doesn't <laughs> like your movie. But, <laughs> but uh, it's currently, you know, how three years later, sitting at still a 98% on Ooh, Rotten Tomatoes yeah. and a 7.7 on IMDb. And a lot of the actual acclaim went to Jordan Peele himself mm. and the incredible blend of comedy and horror. Yeah. And just the way that it seemed like it was pretty much just a seamless transition for him. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really impressive how, like you said, like the transition was not bumpy. Like, 
you know, I remember reading some interviews or maybe even just watching the special features, but like originally he had that the ending where like the cops like were like cops show up and his main thing was just like it's just such a drag like you don't you want to go out on a high note yeah and having rod show up in the tsa in the airport car and then his first line being i told you not to go on that out it's like <laughs> such a it's like the perfect fun it's like the most it's the perfect button to like that movie like you could not write a better scene because literally every black person was like I, he told you not to go in that house i'm like yeah like, you should Rod is right 100% yeah, of the Rod time is in this right, movie. Rod is literally every black person watching that movie. And he is doing, he is right the entire time. He's like, don't yeah. go to that house. And like when, as soon as like when he tries to like record her and he's like, damn, she's good. Like all that is so funny and so perfect. And like I, I, uh, I lived in, in Atlanta for a, uh, for a couple months when I was working at Adult Swim and like you see you see rod a lot like that is a real guy that lives in atlanta who works for delta <laughs> at the atlanta airport and like he has a lot of a lot of strong thoughts on the tsa and the work that he does like yeah. it's very yeah. funny seeing like that is such a very specific character and like he, he they absolutely nailed him in that movie there are, there were a handful of alternate endings that that i'll talk about at the end mm-hmm. but I'm really glad that yeah. they went with the one. Yeah, that's that such did. a such a good ending. And uh, just as far as uh, the reception, it, the last thing I wanted to say about that was that um, it wasn't even just critics. Uh, people all over the world really, really just loved it. Chance the Rapper even enjoyed it so much that he was straight up just buying out theaters and saying, like, <laughs> roll up with an ID and enjoy it. Oh, that's like, great. Just, just come on in. Yeah. And despite the, the film's wide critical acclaim, uh, Get Out kind of divided Oscar voters. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that tracks. Many of the older members of the Academy dismissed the film or just straight up didn't even see it. Mm-hmm. I was I was reading this Vulture piece about it, and it was just really, really wild. Like, new voting members um, were endorsing the film, and then they were, like, just getting interference run by senior members, especially for Best Picture, saying, like, I had multiple conversations with longtime Academy members who were like, this is not an Oscar film, mm. and like people hadn't even seen it yeah. at that point, and we're like, oh, it's just not. And I grabbed a quote from just an insanely obtuse member <laughs> of the Academy, where he told the Hollywood Reporter, under the condition of anonymity, that the film's Oscar campaign turned him off because, quote, what bothered me was that instead of focusing on the fact that this was an entertaining little horror movie that made quite a bit of money, they started trying to suggest it had deeper meaning than it does. <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, they played the race card, and that really turned me off. In fact, at one of the luncheons, the lead actor, who's not even from the United States, was giving us a lecture on racism in America and how black lives matter. And I thought, what does this have to do with Get Out? They're trying to make me think if I don't vote for this movie, I'm a racist. I was really offended. That sealed it for me. Which is just like, how do yeah. you even arrive at that? Yeah, I, I can't remember the, the specific statistic, but I th- feel like um, I read that the average age for a academy voter is like 60 like that's the the medium oh. age uh it's so like these are old predominantly rich white dudes that their idea of like you know a classic film was like you know the good the back and ugly which is a great movie but it's like yeah 50 years old and it's not what young right. people are watching these days <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's also like you kind of feel like it's easy to see them as like the Bradley Whitford character yeah. and how they like put on this illusion of being woke and, mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, we love black people until it actually matters. Yeah, yeah. And like <laughs> we have to support them. So it's it, it was just 
basically my point is that in, despite the shithead infestation <laughs> in the Academy, uh, the film did manage to earn four nominations. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actor for, for Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah. And th- this puts Peel in pretty storied company mm-hmm. because he became just the third person after Warren Beatty and James Brooks to earn uh, Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay nominations for debut film, and the first black winner for Best Original Screenplay, and the fourth overall nominated, which is <laughs> disgusting. Yeah. But, I mean, John Singleton, Spike Lee, and Suzanne DePass, none of them have won a Best Original Screenplay yeah. nomination, and uh, thankfully, Jordan did, in fact, get that. And also, Get Out joined just five horror films to be nominated for Best Picture. And yeah, I was going to say, the, the Academy also doesn't really really like genre films that much like you very rarely will ever see a comedy get nominated let alone win but also for horror like you very rarely see like you'll see like sci-fi i feel like feels like a little bit more prestige because i feel like they think of it as like the thinking man's genre but like (laughs) horror horror never gets any accolades so like the fact that he got that through is such a huge win uh not only for like black filmmakers but just for like people that love genre films yeah, I remember watching the Oscars that year and just being so excited that it, it happened because it was like, I mean, as much as I understand, like, the, I, I'm so conflicted about the Oscars because it's impossible to say that they don't matter. Yeah, because a lot of people take them very seriously. And when something gets a nomination, a lot of that's what drives a lot of people to go see it. Yeah, um, but they just get it wrong so often. <sighs> dude, that, dude, the thing that I like to do. Uh, this is something that I started doing when I was in film school is that, like, I would – whenever – I go back to, like, whatever year that – the whatever one big picture and then look at the films that it was up against. And, like, those yeah. movies are generally way better than whatever one big picture. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I can't remember what year – like, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was, like, a great Tarantino film out. It was, like – all these great films are just out and, like, Lincoln won. You're, like, Lincoln? You're, like <laughs> – no, you're telling me people are like in 2020. You're gonna go out and buy a Blu-ray of Lincoln to watch it for fun? No, you're not. They Get out of here. They love Spielberg, man. Yeah. They love them some Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. And so s- switching to horror at large for a second in 2017, that became the first year ever that the horror genre reached a billion dollars in ticket sales at the U.S. box office. Mm. It was a interesting year for horror. There was a lot of crap that came out, like the Bye Bye Man. The biggest ones that came out in terms of box office were It. The first It mm. came out, which was a huge surprise to a lot of people. It was like, I, I enjoyed It. My only reference for it was like the TV movie, so I guess the bar was set kind of low production-wise. Right. But like, <laughs> I remember being like, this is like a creepy take, and like I really enjoyed It for the most part. Happy Death Day, Don't. which I think was another really interesting kind of blend of horror and comedy mm-hmm. that really walked the line really well. Mm-hmm. Split came out in late uh, 2016 and then in the beginning of 2017 yeah. got most of its box office. It Comes at Night, which is good. Yeah, like that, that was movie. A24, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Jigsaw was another big one, which is number eight or something. For... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're just printing money at this point. Like, oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> sequel number nine. Yeah, exactly. So g- good for horror. Yeah. I- I'm, I'm thrilled. To, even if it's not a movie that I loved all the time, I'm thrilled to see horror doing well. So Those list of films that you just listed are very, like none of those movies are similar other than like yeah. they may scare you. Like It Comes at Night is uh, is n- nowhere near as as fastly paced as it like you know right like you, you almost yeah, need yeah. a coffee when you're watching it comes at night <laughs> but it's it's still like a very interesting creepy and unsettling film and like i 
I uh, I love that all those sort of diverse different voices are getting out there horror wise anyway. Now, 45 minutes in, we can finally start talking about the plot. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm a talker. No, hey, dude, this is, I feel like it's all on me because I am having such a great time talking about this movie. But um, it opens up, like we said, on Lakeith Stanfield walking around in this suburb that was supposed to reflect Haddonfield uh, from Halloween as sort of this like perfect white suburb. And I want to say that the character of Andre is absolutely correct to complain about Edgewood Lane being only half a mile from Edgewood Road. <laughs> yeah. That is terrible planning. Yeah. That's such a funny specific, too. So right. Yeah. Um, and so he's, he's walking to his girlfriend's house on the phone when a white Porsche starts to stalk him. Mm. And he is freaked out immediately. He sees it following him. Uh, and he's like, you know, not today. I'm yeah. going home. And... Um, he starts to head back, but gets quickly choked out by someone who we don't know. Mm. Eventually, we find out that it is Caleb Landry Jones's character. Mm. But at the time, all we see is that they're wearing a knight's helmet, <laughs> yeah. which is weird. Yeah, you're like, well, okay, <laughs> we're we are not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. Um. And but it's funny because like you you laugh at this like weird knight's helmet, but yeah. then also like he, it's like it gets really intense really quick yeah. because he like chokes him out and drags him over to the car, mm-hmm. and nothing changes. Yeah. None of the lights go on. Mm-hmm. Like. Nobody comes out. Mm-hmm. It's just him dragging this guy away. Yeah. Really intense right away. It cuts to an upscale apartment, which covered in black and white photography. Again, sort of mm-hmm. looking at this uh, this racial tension here from the person who lives there, Chris Washington, who play, who's played by Daniel Kaluuya. He's a photographer. And uh, his girlfriend, Rose Armitage, who's played by Allison Williams, mm-hmm. is uh, heading over to his apartment. And like you said, he's sort of apprehensive about meeting her family at the time. They're going away for the weekend. And she says, like, oh, I didn't tell them that you were black. Yeah. And, and there's all this sort of prior conceptions that people are bringing into it in terms of, like, how does that change the, the weekend that I'm about to have and, and, and <laughs> yeah. all that? How does it change so. this weekend? Like, how does it change perception of, like, our relationship? Like, you haven't told yeah. your parents. Also, all of this is underscored by Childish Gambino's Redbone, which is all about, like, the lyrics playing are, like, stay woke, don't get caught sleeping. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's, <laughs> it tells you everything you need to know about what's going to happen in this movie. Uh, the music in this movie is really, really great. Mm-hmm. And it did not just the the soundtrack stuff like Childish Gambino's Redbone, but uh, Michael Abel's did the score work for this movie. Great score. And it's so good. Yeah. It's it really reflects that theme as well. The the main theme of the movie is um uh Sikaliza Kwa Wahenga, which was sung in Swahili mm. with the exception of the English word brother, mm. uh, which was a word that Abel's felt had a special universal meaning among black people that didn't need translation. Mm. And according to Abel's, the voices in the song represent the souls of black slaves and lynching victims trying to warn Chris mm. to get away. The translation of the lyrics in Swahili literally mean uh, brother, run, listen to the elders, <laughs> listen to the truth, run away, oh, save God. yourself. Which, I mean, doesn't get much more explicit yeah, than that. Yeah, it tells you everything <laughs> you need to know. And Abel's had never worked on a film before. Oh, wow. But he specializes in traditional concert music with influences from blues, jazz, and African music. Mm. And so he brings all these things together, and Jordan Peele found one of his orchestral compositions called Urban Legends on YouTube, and was just like, this guy could terrorize some people in a movie, and that was literally like how he decided. <laughs> he could make me very frightened for an hour and a half. 
Yeah. And also in this scene, I, I think is really interesting. Jordan Peele, he talks about how he directed Allison Williams to think of her role as two completely separate characters, mm. which were Rose, Chris's fun and loyal girlfriend, and Roro, the cruel and heartless sociopath, <laughs> he said. And he was really concerned about her ability to play both at the same time, mm-hmm. but that he was like, this is really going to come into effect later on when she's on the phone with Rob, that scene that you yeah. were talking about earlier, um, in which she has kind of on the Roro face and mannerisms physically, with the voice, but she yeah. still has to sound like Rose. Um, Truly one of the most frightening in, scenes in that movie. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Yeah. And Peel knew that it was essential in this opening scene that the audiences believe that Rose and Chris are in love. Mm-hmm. Because without that belief, so much of what's coming doesn't have the same impact, especially the the quick heel turn that we mentioned yeah. earlier as well. So a, a really great scene. And on their way to the, the parents' house, Chris hops on the phone with his friend Rod, who is Lil Rel Howery, mm-hmm. and he's watching Chris's dog, but... Rod, like we said, straight up warns him. He's like, don't go to that <laughs> yeah. house. Like, you shouldn't like, do this. Don't go. Don't trust them. She didn't tell you that the parents were black. It's going to be bad for you. I'm telling you, yeah. man, stay here. Should have listened. But, uh, he, he, they're, they're driving down, and a deer truly comes out of nowhere. Yeah. This thing like flies in from the It side. does like a double backflip and smacks in the front of the car <laughs> and then scurries off. Some Olympics-level <laughs> shit. Yeah. And they nail it. And it kind of – like. It's really like pitiful the mm. way that it like dies in the woods there while Chris is watching. You like you really feel like sad for yeah, it. Yeah, it, it's it's very trauma. I mean, you find out later on what that symbolizes, but like it is the one of the first moments in the movie where like, all right, we're going to be in for a ride, and like we're going to be emotionally manipulated in ways that I don't think we're prepared for <laughs> <laughs> from a movie from Jordan Peele. Exactly. I mean, Chris is so clearly shaken up mm-hmm. while uh, while Rose is talking to a cop that she called to report it. And I did laugh. Uh, I missed this line the first time I watched it, but when I was rewatching it, the cop was like, "In the future, just call animal control." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "That's a really funny." Yeah, line. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, why is yeah, like why did you call nine one one to report a dead deer? <laughs> yeah, but uh, Rose freaks out when the cop asks for Chris's ID, mm. and it seems the Im- the implication is that you're like, oh, she's sticking up for Chris. Like, yeah. why does this cop need? Like, he had nothing to do with it. Um, but you realize that she's just avoiding a paper trail, yeah. showing them together. Mm-hmm. Like, again, everything is something. Yeah, all of it works towards the greater picture, mm-hmm. and. This scene, I think, really kind of encapsulates that. Yeah, and it, it really it, there's a scene that is really enhanced by a second or third viewing. You see the the, the real um, intention behind what some of these characters are doing in this in this movie. Yeah, exactly. And they finally arrive at the Armitage House, which is in upstate New York. And there's a really great slow zoom out here that I, I really liked a lot, where uh, they pull back and you don't hear what they're saying, but eventually it just reveals the black groundskeeper. Mm-hmm which we find out later is, in fact, the grandfather, grandfather yeah. of the family, is just staring at them <laughs> while while they're being greeted. And Rose's parents, Missy and Dean, who are played by Keener and Whitford, uh, are extremely wealthy from their jobs as hypnotherapists and neurosurgeons, respectively. Mm-hmm. And they come on so strong. Oh, yeah, they're out the, out the box. They're like, we are liberals. <laughs> we're rich liberals, <laughs> upstate liberals. Did you guys know? <laughs> You're like, oh, like that's the stuff we're like, it could very easily become a comedy sketch because they are so big in their mm. like in their characters, but like because it's being shot like a horror film, you're like, Oh, these motherfuckers are up to something. 
off the yeah. bat, we know they're up to no good. Yeah, and I mean, Dean in particular makes everyone so uncomfortable <laughs> when he starts talking about how he hates deer and he wants them dead yeah. and they're a plague. And you're like, so what's okay, the subtext dude, here? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so Dean goes to give Chris the tour, and we get a ton of info mm-hmm. on this tour here where. Uh, Dean says it's such a privilege to experience another person's culture, yeah. which is obviously foreshadowing mm-hmm. once you know. Mm-hmm. But he also points out a picture of his dad, Roman, who lost to Jesse Owens in the qualifying round for the Olympics in the 30s. And again, there's just sort of this like extrapolation that you can do where it's like so many of these people who are like, oh, I'm not racist mm-hmm. until like I'm, someone is better someone at me. takes my job. <laughs> That's brown, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. This, this, the expectation of being owed this place mm-hmm. in the Olympics or just having a job yeah. is, I think, really. They do a great job of kind of making that point here, mm-hmm. and then uh, Dean leads him to the kitchen, and he says that his mom always loved the kitchen, so they keep a piece of her there. Yeah. And this is right before the camera pans around and reveals Georgina, yeah. who has Marianne Armitage's brain. Yeah. Just so much of the camera work is doing a great yeah. job of communicating stuff, too, which is really important. And again, something that I think is relatively exclusive to horror in terms of how much the camera work does story yeah you know that's a very interesting point like only i i feel like only in a horror and 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 thrillers to an extent where are you if it was any other genre it would seem on the nose or like maybe blatant but with like here in in horror films it's used as like accents to be like Mm -hmm. this is a thing that you weren't expecting like your world's been turned upside down a little bit and this is something buddy that you need to focus on who's probably going to bring harm uh, to this world that the the hero's sort of trying to navigate. Yeah, and uh, they finally head outside where Dean drops the information of how distant the next house is, which is, <laughs> yeah. you gotta have that. Can't hear you scream. <laughs> Can't hear you scream, buddy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, again, it's just crazy how jam-packed the it is with background and clues and character information. Yeah, a lot of this is a very dense introductory scene. Like, there's a lot of things happening. Yeah, uh, so later that evening, we're joined by Rose's brother Jeremy, who is played by Caleb Landry Jones. He's definitely not evil. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, he's the most obviously evil person in that whole movie. Oh, And, man. like, this is the only time that I wish that, like, Rod could have just seen this guy to be like, yo, that dude's evil. <laughs> just letting you know that guy is bad. Yeah, I mean, especially because later that, when they're having dinner and, like, he's getting drunk and it's just not even, he's, like, barely even pretending anymore he's like he's getting aggressive and he's like talking about chris's genetic makeup and like uh, (laughs) you're just like be a beast god this guy is the worst (laughs) yeah like yeah come on dude keep kayfabe (laughs) and he uh he talks about how his jujitsu is better than the judo chris took in first grade because you got to think ahead of your opponents and he's just he sucks yeah and chris is unable to sleep that night because he's kind of being haunted by this deer and i mean it's also just Mm -hmm. a terrible situation that he's found himself in full of uncomfortable uh, moments but he walks outside this uh, that night and he sees the groundskeeper walter running at him at full speed yeah which later on we find out that walter is roman dean's dad and the guy that we just saw on the wall and during the commentary peel he confirms that walter slash roman is out there running because he's trying to improve his time that he lost to to Jesse with. And this shot of him running right at Chris and the audience is sort of a nod towards uh, Peel's admiration for the power of depth in film, he said. Uh, Mm. He cited North by Northwest Mm. as an inspiration, saying that... Oh, 
damn, yeah. that makes so much sense. Right? Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of creates this like visceral and physical reaction because you're like, is it going to come out somehow? <laughs> like, Yeah. It's like, you know, that old Nickelodeon with like the train coming towards the screen. Yeah, the exactly. Like, is the train going to hit me? Yeah, yeah. The very first horror movie from 1895, <laughs> train pulling into <laughs> station from the Lumiere brothers. <laughs> yeah. That classic. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's got to see that one. Yeah. Uh, Next to Boy <laughs> Holds Hose. Yeah, the classic film. Um, and Chris, I mean, with great reason, is freaked out by this. And he turns <laughs> yeah. around. And the first thing he sees when he turns around is Georgina staring at herself in the mirror and sort of like fussing with yeah. her hair. And that weirds him out, too. And he's like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, especially yeah. because. He kind of, when he talked to them, he expected them to, like, have some sort of connection with him because... Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a familiarity that he came in with, and, like, uh, right off the bat, like, oh, God, it's such a good choice with, like, the way that they speak, like, 80-year-old, yeah. like, old white people, and you're just like, you're like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, like, when, later on, when Georgina, like, she doesn't know the word snitch, she doesn't know, like, yeah. rat you out, and she's like, oh, yeah. tattletale. Tattle <laughs> yeah, you're, he's like... Yeah, that'll tell. <laughs> and so all of this weird shit, he, he heads inside because he's like, all right, back to bed. And as he heads in, Missy pressures him into a hypnotherapy session to mm. cure his smoking addiction. <sighs> that, so Terrifying she says. scene. Yeah. And she Terrifying it scene. It really is. And she claims it's for the health of Rose, but really it's so that he doesn't damage his body and lessen the value when they literally sell him. And yeah. as you'll notice, she's using a silver spoon, a classic symbol of privilege. <laughs> so. Yeah. The thing that I love most about this scene is that you get to really, like, you, you, Daniel Kalua is acting his ass off in this scene. Like, you oh, can, yeah. t like, he's fighting back so much. Like, he doesn't want to talk about his mom. He doesn't want to, like, engage with this weird ass waspy family that he just met. He's trying to process, like, the, the dude, the, like, six-foot-five dude that just sprinted at him full force yeah. and, like, this weird, like, house-made lady who's, like, checking her face at, like, yeah. 2 a.m. in the morning. Like, even, there's so much going on. Even without that, what a personal question. To, like, <laughs> yeah, where were you when your mom died? Yeah. He's like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk yeah. about that. And then she starts, like, whacking her spoon oh, against the, to the tea. It's, yeah. it's so eerie. And, it, uh, yeah, that the tea, she, it keeps cutting to, like, close-ups of the tea that she's using as an aural focus mm -hmm. point and these close-ups of her face and and his face and him picking at the seat at like just uncomfortable yeah. and it's so so great and while he's in this trance that she puts him in chris does get forced into talking about his guilt over his mother's death mm -hmm. uh, in a hit and run when he was a child and part of what makes him feel so guilty is because he didn't call anyone or go out looking when she didn't come home uh, which he said yeah. because that would make it real, which I think is so what a great, yeah. like, so understandable. Like, yeah, great justification for like, and it makes little sense as a kid. Like, you're a kid, like, I'm just going to lock in on this escape box and not even try to process what's going on. Yeah. And yeah, like we said, this sort of explains his reaction to the deer earlier. Mm -hmm. And he's paralyzed and sinks into this void that Missy calls the sunken place. What a great reveal. Oh, this, like, this, that's, that's when I was like, oh, we got ourselves a movie. Yeah. Like, that's when you're like, <laughs> Oh, this is this is going to be a everything up until that point was very like not by the numbers, but you know you're like what you you have a pre expectation of like what this type of horror movie this is going to be. So when you add in these surreal like, pseudo 
psychedelic moments where like he's floating in like a black void watching a tv screen that's oh, sort of man. like shrinking away from him you're like oh jordan pill is making something right now yeah and it looks so good and this is a, a yeah. nice mix of practical and cgi here where uh he was attached to wires and floating in front of a black background and it's really great it's a really great scene yeah. and peel said that coming up with the sunken place was like a real emotional journey for him where yeah he said uh, this is a quote I always had this concept of the place that you're falling towards when you're going to sleep and you get that falling sensation and you catch yourself. Mm. And if you didn't catch yourself, where would you end up? I had this hellish image and I thought of this idea of what if you were in a place and you could look through your own eyes as if they were literal windows or a screen and see what your body was seeing, but feel like a prisoner in your own mind, the chamber of your mind. And the moment I mm. thought of that, it immediately occurred to me that this theme of abduction and connection to the prison industrial complex that the movie was sort of presenting a metaphor for, it was a very emotional journey. I remember having so much fun writing it, but at the moment when I figured out this weird, esoteric, but also emotionally brutal form of suffering to put the character through, I literally cried writing that scene. Damn. Ooh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so great. And it's so many layers to this thing. Really, it really does have so much going on. And. I think that that passion and the ability to sort of put that emotion into the work that that mm -hmm. he's talking about is part of what makes it so so impressive. You know, it, the fact that it, it really comes through this passion that he has. Yeah, it, it, you can definitely tell that it's coming from a very real lived in experience because I feel like I also maybe read some interviews where he talked about like the family is very loosely based on like Chelsea Peretti's family. <laughs> right. Like when he like first met them, you're like, like this is coming from a. a a very lived in world that he's experienced and the idea of like the idea of like being like that that falling asleep um analogy is so perfect because oh, yeah. you like you mean obviously you're asleep at the wheel someone else is driving like that's the whole metaphor for that whole stuff but like the world like that sequence is so terrifying because he is like very literally like lose being losing grasp of his own like functions and stuff and like he's literally him just like, like reaching yeah out like, trying to like swim through that yeah. is like it's so horrifying it really is and he wakes with a gasp the next morning and <laughs> yeah. he assumes that the encounter was a dream and while he's out taking photos he notices georgina being weird and staring at her face again this time like mm -hmm. kind of look at like holding up her bangs and looking under it yeah and he finds out that it wasn't a dream because he goes to talk to walter who on top of just being generally weird and being like she's a real <laughs> keeper <laughs> like, yeah. uh, but he, she's the bee's knees yeah. and uh he also apologizes for the night before chris talks to rose about it and she offers to tell her dad but this is sort of where that like not wanting to stir the pot kind of comes in where yeah. it's like he says it's not a big deal it, it, it was it's weird as fuck like this guy is acting yeah. weird as fuck <laughs> like, yeah he's like all right i got a day and a half left yeah. i can get out of here exactly i i think it's so realistic just the time like you're so desperate to not cause Ugh. even awkwardness. yeah you're like i don't want to deal with this stress like i don't want to deal with the fallout i'll just fucking choke it down yeah. and, and and make my way through it yeah and dozens of wealthy white people start to arrive for the armitage's <laughs> annual get together and it's just yeah. like the worst kind of fetishization <laughs> where like they're all admiring Chris's physique and being like, is sex yeah. with black people better? And I know of Tiger Woods and like, yeah. How is your hip? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's crazy. And like they keep expecting Chris to be impressed and obviously he's not. And yeah. there's a deleted scene that's, it's kind of more of the same. So I get why it's gone, but I still really liked mm -hmm. it where Chris is playing badminton uh, like Caleb Landry Jones invites him over to play badminton and as he's playing mm -hmm. literally the entire party 
like slowly walks over and is just like ogling at him. At, oh wow! It's, yeah, it's it's a really great scene. And and once he notices, he's like, "Oh, I have to go to the bathroom." And that's when he walks upstairs, mm-hmm. and everyone gets quiet. But like, yeah, that 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 particular sequence when like he walks in, when he's like freaked out and he walks upstairs and everyone stops talking oh. and looks at him. It, it it gives me chills every single time that I that I see yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And um, Peel said that the backstory for this group, just for people who don't know, it's a kind of a fun one. He says that they belong to an ancient secret society de- descended from the Knights Templar, who for centuries <laughs> had been trying to seek eternal life promised by the Holy Grail and finally achieved it with the Coagula pro- uh, procedure. Um, which also finally does explain the significance of the knight's helmet that Jeremy had in the opening. Oh sequence. wow, that yeah, I just put that together. Yeah, there you okay, go. Yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> and Daniel said uh, that he can relate to the party scene as well, mm, and he said, "Yeah, I bet so." He said uh, the party scene was just like, "Oh, I've been in this party. I'm going to that party." That kind mm. of racism that isn't seen as racism, that isn't seen as like kind of mainstream racism it's just life Mm -hmm. and to explore that is an uncomfortable conversation but jordan just spoke his truth he cinematically articulated an experience that millions of people go through and they're made to feel crazy for going through it but he said Mm -hmm. no actually you're not crazy um which Mm -hmm. i think is really a great summation of this scene you know one of the i think a, a good subtext i would love to go back through and watch this under the subtext of just like gaslighting in general Mm -hmm. Because, like, obviously, you know, Chris's character is gaslit, but, like, all of it is, like, sort of permeated by this weird, like you mentioned, like, weird, like, unspoken, you know, low-tier racism that's not, like, they don't have clan hoods on and they're not, you know, tying nooses and stuff, but it's, like, this weird fetishization and, and like, you would feel, like, if you said anything, you would be the crazy person at the party. Right. Just, like, They'd starting. be like, oh, why are you, why are you ruining the party? It's like, yeah. <laughs> like, what do you? Like, why is your wife gripping my bicep right yeah. now? Really, yeah. it's crazy. And also, speaking to that not having, like, clan hoods on or anything, there is sort of a little bit of playing with that where, like, a lo- one of the most violent uh, chapters of the KKK was, like, the um, the White Knights of the KKK. Mm-hmm. And so this relation to the Knights Templar and this obsession with sort yeah. of this, like, European bro- bloodline and everything, there mm-hmm. is uh, some there's something going on there as well. So yeah. a-, a lot going on throughout this whole movie. And <laughs> From across the way, while he's taking photos, Chris spots another black man, Logan King, who uh, is behaving strangely and is married to a much older white woman. And this is Lakeith Stanfield, not acting at all like himself from the beginning, which when you see him and you realize that it's him, you're like... Oh, the guy from the beginning. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, it's so perfect because he has like that goofy straw hat on. And he like yeah. he's talking like some yacht club dork. Oh, it's man. such a. I mean, it's it's very scary. But once again, like that could very easily be like a, a sketch character. Yeah, absolutely. And and he gets pulled away to do a, a little spin for a group of white people admiring his new <laughs> body. Like, it's once you are like watching this for the second, third, whatever time. And you like, yeah, that's so obvious. Like they're literally like, yeah. Oh, do a spin for us. Let's just like, good job. Yeah. Like, you did it. Daniel <laughs> or Logan or whatever his name yeah, was. Yeah. It's, it's just wild. And Chris wanders over and he meets Jim Hudson. Who's a blind art mm. dealer who takes a particular interest in Chris's photography skills. This is mm. Steven root who just rules. He's great. Not just in this yeah. movie, but he's been just a fantastic one of the best guy. to ever do it for sure. And Chris finds out that, 
that his phone got unplugged by Georgina, quote unquote, by accident. Mm -hmm. But there's a little juice left and he calls Rod again about the strange behavior. And again, correctly, Rod says that the mom is hypnotizing all the black people. (laughs) Making them sick slaves. (laughs) And Chris sarcastically laughs it off, but should have listened to Rod. Yeah, listen to TSA, man. Yeah, and we get the one-on-one encounter between Chris and Georgina here to really sort of see her bizarre behavior. And Mm. she starts crying when Chris says that he gets gets nervous around too many white people. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I thought was really interesting is a lot of people think that this is the black person inside reaching out from the sunken yeah. place. But Peel said that because there was no flash, that's the thing that brings people out. This is just Marianne being offended that Chris said that. Like, oh, wow. White... Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Because I thought the same thing, too, but I didn't think about the flash thing. Recontextualizing that, that is very, very funny because it's a perfect example of, like, white fragility and the idea yeah. that he could just say that. And, oh, my God, that's so funny. And she's like, no, 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 no. That's not my experience. It's like. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's really, really great. And so Chris, he heads back out because he's going to try and photograph Logan inconspicuously. And (laughs) by holding his phone in his. It's really it's he's like, here here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But he his flash goes off during uh, during this picture, and Logan's nose starts bleeding, and he becomes mm. hysterical, and he grabs yeah. him, and he sh- starts shouting, "Get out!" Yeah, get out, brother. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean so intense. It feels like it comes out of nowhere, and yeah, the others restrain him, and Dean kind of waves it off, saying that Logan mm. had a seizure caused by the flash mm. before the character of Andre, who is inside of Logan, yeah, gets sort of smothered again by Logan and mm-hmm. he just gets shuffled off. And I, I mean, this, this is the moment when Chris is like, okay, time yeah. to go <laughs> get the bags. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, and, start the car. Yeah. And so he, he pulls Rose away from the party and he starts trying to convince her that they should leave. And, this was the only scene that Daniel struggled with because, well, first mm. of all, they were under pressure to film quickly because the sun was going yeah. down. But he also, he couldn't understand the character's motivations and not just immediately leaving without her and running for his life after everything yeah. that he had experienced. And Andre was like, literally, get out. And Peel said that, he, he told Daniel that Rose had become like family to Chris, who was yeah. still haunted by guilt over his mother's death. And so he needed to prove to himself and to her mm. that he, was, he wasn't someone who would have abandon his family anymore yeah exactly yeah and so once he said that Kaluuya was able to just nail the scene and I Mm. think that he really does a great job of sort of being like I we need to go but I want you to come with me like I don't want this to just be me running off yeah and it's sort of counterbalanced by this really intense powerful scene of Dean holding a silent auction with a photo of Chris with which Hudson wins and it's so I mean even the even someone who as blind as Hudson could be yeah. like that is a slave auction that I'm watching. Yeah, like. yeah, and, and like the the great reveal, like you don't see who like when he does like the that he I, people can't see what I'm doing, but <laughs> when he, he he flashes ten with his hands two times and like he motions off screen and you don't see who it is, you're like, oh boy, big spender. Oh boy, it's yeah. good. Yeah, it's gonna be bad. Yeah, someone who was so debt like because I mean the one before that it was like four million. I, I assume it's millions that he's gesturing yeah. in, but. Uh, he like gestures four times and then it jumps up to 20 and you're like, holy yeah. shit, like someone is not playing around. And then when it's yeah, finally it's... revealed that it's Hudson, this guy mm-hmm. who was sort of inquiring about his photography skills, man, yeah. it's just such a like a gut punch. Yeah, because he's like one of the few, you know, quote unquote good ones at the he seems like he's a, 
Yeah, good he calls one them the party. ignorant. Like, yeah. yeah. And Chris does manage to send this photo of Logan to Rod. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes him as Andre, but again, dressed completely out of his typical style. And Rod, yeah. Rod again says, get out. <laughs> but um, at that point, the battery in Chris's phone dies. And yeah. Boy, when that happens, you're just you. You're like fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, you, you gotta. We 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 need to get out of it. Yeah, I loved that whole conversation with between him and and Rod. It's very short, but it's also so funny. Being like connecting dots, like that's Dre. Like who's Dre? Like Dre was somebody ex ex girlfriend or ex boyfriend or whatever. Like yeah. all of that is such like a circle of confusion that is so funny, and it's almost like a who's on first. <laughs> but you had this like ticking clock of like there was a bunch of like crazy rich. I guess Knight Templar descendant races downstairs. <laughs> I want to take my brain out. We we gotta we can yeah. figure this out later. Like, okay, dude. he was from Brooklyn too. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get let's get to the point, man. And so his phone dies, but Chris is he's packing to leave because he did convince Rose, and he finds Rose's fucked up little trophy hall <laughs> with photos of Rose in prior relationships with black yeah. people, including Walter and Georgina. Which yeah. not only are you like, whoa, that's fucking weird, but also <laughs> directly contradicts her claim that Chris is her first black boyfriend. Yeah, so she's been doing numbers. Yeah, a lot. It's it's so so shocking when you he starts flipping through and you see these people. So it's also yeah, like you're saying, like you know, that's the first point that's like, hey, this lady is like obviously bad, but we still watch that and we're like, maybe she's still hypnotized. Maybe it wasn't <laughs> her fault that she was been grooming people for for who knows how long yeah and and so chris tries to leave the house and he's like all right like let's do this on the on the go as as she's like looking for (laughs) her keys which i thought was really funny and um he tries to leave but the family blocks him and sort of menaces him and this is when we see that rose is in fact part of the team Mm -hmm. and uh chris attacks jeremy but Missy uses this trigger that she implanted mm-hmm. during the hypnosis to send him back to the sunken place. There's another deleted scene here that I really liked. I wish it managed to stay in where, like, just a scary deer skeleton attacks him while he's falling into the into Oh, the, wow. Oh, I got to see that. Yeah, it's really cool. It's, I mean, it's sort of like a obviously CGI skeleton, but you're like, yeah. it connects all of the pieces together. Yeah. And it, it's mm-hmm. just cool stuff. But after being unable to get in contact with Chris again, and finding out that Andre had been reported missing, this is when Rod steps into action. Rod's time. I to love shine. this. I love this whole detour that they that <laughs> like you never see this part in any horror movie. Yeah. And like this is one of the few scenes in the movie that is like we're just gonna do a comedy for like three scenes. It's gonna <laughs> be a very short, quick comedy. We're like, if your best friend disappears and like it's like Monday or Tuesday, or whatever, and he went to this weird waspy neighborhood, and like you, he's been calling you all weekend, saying all types of weird shits going down. Yeah, you're like connecting the dots. There's like one point where like you see his notepad and it has magic. Crossed out. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that, but it laughed so hard because you're yeah, like, he, yeah, of course Rod would think he they're using magic to to hypnotize him. Yeah, he he like mumbles to him. He like crosses that out and he's like, no, magic's not real. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny and like also it's like a um it's like a nice palate cleanser because like you we've been going through this very tense thriller up until this point and like it almost resets you where you're like, oh, oh, yeah, this is fun. Things can be fun. And then you go right back to like him and like strapped up in that chair. It's such a wild swing, but also it's such it pays off so well. Yeah. I mean, at some point you can't keep escalating. And so you have to kind of bring people back down so that you can start from that ground level again and start building it Mm -hmm. back up to get that tension. 
But yeah, so Rod, he suspects a conspiracy and he goes <laughs> to the police, but no one believes him there because it is a pretty crazy An story. Insane thing, yeah. Yeah, and so he calls Rose and she answers. And yeah, this is the scene we were talking about where it's one of the mm-hmm. scariest scenes in the whole damn movie. Yeah. And it's so great. She's all like, basic instincted up with like a white turtleneck (laughs) high ponytail yeah yeah. and she just looks cold as ice and Mm -hmm. but again she's acting vocally like she's stressed and confused but rod is on to her and he literally says yeah she's i'm on to you and yeah yeah. he goes to record her but she starts she turns it around on him and gets him all flustered by being like i know you've always had a thing for me and like yeah it's just great it's really great it's scary you you feel for rod who's just trying to help his friend out but uh, (laughs) and he's too flustered he can't get it done (laughs) and then he like he hangs up he's like damn she's good yeah oh man just what a great performance really is by uh, little rel howry but uh, like you said chris wakes up again strapped to this chair in the basement and he gets this video presentation where Rose's grandfather, Roman, explains that the family transplants um, black people or no, their own brains into other people's bodies, mm-hmm. uh, granting them their quote unquote preferred physical characteristics and a twisted form of immortality. And I like the idea of them investing and like like getting the production together to make this video <laughs> is so funny to me. <laughs> I had that exact same thought. I'm like. They hired some like crew to like shoot this and edit this, and even like it almost devolves in like a Tim and Eric sketch for like for yeah. like twenty seconds. You're like, because like there are moments where like he holds a beat too long before they cut to the next scene, and like yeah. the transitions are like star wipe and stuff. <laughs> Again, it's all so it could be it could very easily be a comedy sketch, a Key and Pill sketch, but it's it's because of the way that they're 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 shooting it. It's a horror film, but like I had the exact same thought. Also, I'm like. Are they like live streaming this to this like old ass TV? Like, how is this working right now? But yeah, because Chris is he's scratching at the chair trying to free himself, and the TV turns to Hudson, where you're like, <laughs> you're like well, how are, how is this happening? But uh, he tells him about the procedure and that the host's consciousness remains in the sunken place, conscious but powerless. Uh, I mean, just so frightening to think of that. Yeah, and. Although the Armitages target mainly black people, Hudson says that he wants Chris's body only for his sight. And again, when Peel was talking in the commentary about Hudson, he says that even though he's, quote, the farthest from racist due to his blindness, he still plays this part in the system of racism Mm, that it it manifests into racism because... Mm -hmm. He still believes that the eyes of this better artist, who happens to be a black artist, is what's separating him from being a failure or a success. Yeah, and he, he, I think he even has a line of like, I don't give a shit if you're black, white, whatever. It's just like the way that the cards are dealt. And you're like, oh, wow. And also that sort of ties back to like that conversation they have where I think Chris is like, he says something about genetics. And he's like, yeah, like that's, that's fucked up or it's a hard card that he got dealt. And like that's sort of like. Hutchinson's take is that like I'm sorry this I'm sorry you're getting dealt this card but like you're the brain that has or you're the body that has the best eyes and like we got to do what we got to do yeah yeah and Jordan he was just talking about how this is his intent was that this was going to be commentary on the sentiment that he was hearing a lot during that post-racial lie this mythology of black people actually having an advantage in culture mm. because as the one guy puts during this really uncomfortable party scene where he's like oh black is in fashion now like a pendulum yeah. is swinging the other way and like there were people who genuinely were like, oh, yeah, black people yeah. have the, the advantage now. And like, oh, yeah. I can't get a job because I'm white and people are stealing my job. And it's like, 
yeah so much of the even even though hudson is not actively trying to perpetuate this racism he is mm-hmm. part of it and he's part of yeah. what's keeping the wheel turning so exactly it's it's not a good look hudson <laughs> <laughs> get woke hudson <laughs> And so Missy performs this hypnosis, and it's it seemingly knocks Chris out. But when Jeremy comes to fetch Chris for the surgery, Chris knocks him the hell out with a yes. bocce ball. First of all, bocce <laughs> very white sport. So the fact yeah, that he's using this. <laughs> a bocce ball, yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great little reveal because like he like he take I mean it's it's as obvious as you could be, but like he takes the cotton and he puts it in his ear and like that's what saves him. And then he like you said like he knocks out this racist kid with fucking bocce ball, <laughs> the most waspy sport you can think of. It's so great and it like it, it totally works because on top of you being like. Oh yeah, he was like trying to get out. We've already seen that his like nervous tick was like scratching at the like the mm-hmm. chair and and like getting into there and it, it just all works so well together. Yeah, it's all paid it's every everything that happens in this movie is is set up in a way that one it feels organic and natural and they all have a very satisfying payoff. Oh yeah. But he he knocks him out and as he walks out Dean, the the neurosurgeon, is like, oh, what's taking him so long? And he's yeah. like, sort of like pokes his head out and he looks down the hallway. <laughs> and then great, great reveal where it cuts yeah. back and just Chris is coming out of nowhere with a huge deer head. <laughs> <laughs> just, just nails him. I love when a movie has a good fun kill. Like every horror movie needs to have one fun, silly kill. Exactly. And this was like a great one to have. Yeah, and I mean it's doubly ironic after how much Dean was complaining about the deers earlier. Yeah, and how you're able to sort of you know extrapolate that to being about race, and then Chris yeah. uses this to kill him, and it's great. And being stabbed in the throat by the deer causes Dean to knock over a candle, which mm-hmm. sets fire to the operating room with Hudson inside. So <laughs> yeah. two more out, and uh, yeah. Missy tries to stop him from leaving with both hypnosis and stabbing, but. Chris smashes her cup and he kills Missy with the blade still embedded like, in his hand. Yeah, that was such a bad. I mean, death is bad, but like that was a very <laughs> badass scene. Like he just takes the knife to the hand. He's like, "I'm out of here. I ain't got time to even talk to you." And just like stabs. Doesn't her with even it. react. He like he just <laughs> catches it in his hand, turns it around on her. Man, yeah. it's it's a really really great moment. And yeah. Unfortunately, Jeremy comes to. We realize that he's not actually dead, and and Jeremy attacks Chris as he goes for the door, trying to finally put him in the headlock that he wanted to do back at that dinner scene. And Jeremy keeps kicking the door shut when Chris goes for it, and so despite Mm -hmm. Jeremy's insistence that jujitsu sharpens your mind and gives him the advantage, uh, Chris manages to outsmart him by realizing (laughs) that this is the pattern gets yeah. his leg into stabbing position <laughs> and <laughs> slams the knife back down and just stomps on his head. Stomps him out, yeah. Good Lord, it is intense. It's powerful. It's great. It's like a cathartic Satisfying, oh, yeah, man. yeah. Because he's like the one character that like, you want to see die oh, in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole time. I mean, the like wh- as the reveals start coming, you're like, all right, I'm ready for all these guys to die. But the, like, <laughs> minute one with uh, Jeremy, you're like, this kid fucking sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, this MMA kid fucking sucks. Let's get him out of here. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rose is off having a grand old time upstairs doing just some true freak shit. Like, Psycho shit. <laughs> Drinking for- milk with a straw, which is like one, like, okay, that's weird. But doing like this is such a I don't know I don't maybe I have an answer for this but like I don't know where he got the decision to like eat individual 
pieces of cereal and then drink the milk by doing it. But that is the weirdest, yeah. creepiest shit I've ever seen in a movie. It really is. She, Yeah, she's like, she's eating dry Fruit Loops, which I think is yeah. uh, indicative because there's some commentary here about like keeping the whites separate from like yeah. this very vibrant and colorful cereal. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just freaky as hell. People who eat dry cereal are fucked up. And also, she's using Bing, which yeah. that's yeah. the freakiest thing of all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, really? This house doesn't use Google? Why don't you go to Ask Jeeves as well? <laughs> and she's looking at, like, potential future victims. Like, she pulls up, like, NCAA prospects. Yeah. Uh, and it, this was conceived, like, just shortly before shooting because they were like, we got to add some more, like, creepy shit mm-hmm. for her. And the music that they use was I've had the time of my life. Cause she also has her headphones in. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like that sort of like emotional detachment of like, she's literally like looking through it for the next victim. Yeah. Just it's, it's crazy. And yeah, Jordan also said that the milk on its own was supposed to be creepy because he says that there's something kind of horrific about milk. Think about it. Think about what we're doing. Milk is gross. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I, I can't argue with that. So yeah. Pretty sound argument. Yeah. And, uh, Chris, he gets into the car. He gets into Jeremy's car and he starts driving away. But he hits Georgina, mm-hmm. whose thud gets Rose's attention. And she emerges from the house with a rifle. Yeah. And he is sitting in the car and he's like, just go. Just Don't go. Do it. Yeah. 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 But he's remembering his mother's death. And I, I imagine he's probably feeling bad for the woman who is possessed. He's trapped as well. inside. Yeah. 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 Um, and so Chris goes out and he gets Georgina into the car. But the crash didn't stop her from being possessed by Rose's yeah. grandmother, Marianne. And so she attacks him. And during the struggle, the car crashes, which does kill her. But. This is the moment where you also see the big scar across mm-hmm. her head that she was covering up all the time and what she was looking at in a mirror. And you're like, mm. it all comes together. Yeah, it's all paying <laughs> off. Yeah. It's also like that one. Like it's a very small moment. But like him just going back to grab her tells you that he's gone completely full circling. Like he's overcome his guilt from his mother. Yeah. yeah he, he's confronting his demon in in that moment. And Rose is she comes out. She's firing at Chris and. Walter, who we now know to be possessed by Roman, tackles mm-hmm. him. And mm-hmm. originally there was going to have the line, I finally beat you, Jesse. But Jordan <laughs> decided that was a little over the top. And he, yeah, yeah, he didn't yeah. want, at the, I mean, I understand not wanting to take that risk at the very end of your movie and like yeah. have, have it kind of like soil the last little bit. So mm-hmm. I, I understand why he went away from that. But Chris uses the flash on his phone to neutralize Roman and allow Walter to come back up and take control of the body. And mm. Walter pretends to still have Roman in control, takes Rose's rifle, and, <laughs> man, I loved this. And he just takes it and, bam, shoots her in the <laughs> stomach. She's so, like, shocked. The look on her yeah. face is priceless. And then, I mean, Walter doesn't want roman to take control he he i mean it sucks that this is what it comes to but he sort of takes yeah. control by killing himself here in this mm-hmm. moment he shoots himself and it's an awful thing that it comes it's to that very for tragic him. for like you really i mean everyone knows that it's tragic but like you really really hammers home how tragic it is that these people have been stuck in that sunken place for like god knows how long yeah that like, he was so quick could, he was so yeah. quick on it i mean it must have been just the worst in there and Rose tries to engender some sympathy here, saying, like, oh, mm. I, I still love you, Chris. It's me. It's Rose. And Chris just he just starts to strangle her. Yeah. And 
he stops when this police cruiser pulls onto the scene. And your heart your heart just, just drops. drops. Yeah. Oh my god. She's thinking the exact same thing that we are. She yeah. like smiles slightly and calls out for help and you're you're just devastated in this moment. Yeah. And then the quick swing because the door opens up and it reveals the word airport and it's Rod, baby. He steps yeah. out of the cruiser and he rescues Chris and they leave Rose's ass on that road. Incredible. Oh my God. Consider that situation fucking hand. Yeah. God, that's like the perfect way to end this movie. Like T S motherfucking a, and like, yeah. I like, I sit like literally like the first line where he's like, I told you I had to go in there. Like, it kills me every single time because <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. It's so good. He, he was right. He was totally yeah. right. And again, in this like deleted footage, there's like 10 minutes of him goofing around with different improvised <laughs> lines in this, in this moment. And it's just really great stuff. And so now we can start kind of talking about these alternative endings because there were a few, mm-hmm. uh, although one made it further than the others and was the original ending, which is that Rod is not the one who steps out of the police car. It is in fact a normal police officer. And, mm. Chris is arrested and Rod meets him in jail and asks for information about the uh, family because to investigate, but all the evidence burned down from the surgery, the operating room going up in flames from the, uh, from the candle. And so Chris basically martyrs himself where he says that he stopped them. And so everything is fine because Jordan said that he made this decision because when he, when he went for Georgina and confronted his demons, this was sort of him being like, even though he's in jail, his soul is free. This is the case for mm. a lot of black people who are in prison unjustly. Yeah. And he wanted this to sort of reflect the realities of racism and mm-hmm. how we live in a system that values white people over black people, especially when they're rich. And yeah. so based on how the situation plays out and how it looks, he thought that this was the realistic ending. Mm-hmm. But after the reactions to actual police shootings in the news and gauging the reception at test screenings, uh, he decided that people deserved a happy ending, which I yeah, am thrilled to bits about. Yeah. <laughs> because there, I mean, as lo- he said that as long as the audience <sighs> believes that Chris is about to be arrested, that it would preserve that intended reaction. And I think mm-hmm. he absolutely nails it because yeah, great you, instincts. Yeah. You, you really, you think that this is going to happen and, and you, you're able to, in that moment, understand exactly how the rest of it would have played out. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it's great. Uh, another alternate and scary ending that I think would have been fun uh, has Rod breaking into like a gated community and finding <laughs> Chris and, and like calling his name. But Chris goes, I assure you, I don't know who you're talking about. And like, uh, God, if after all that it yeah. took uh, a man would have been would have been hell. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. Yeah, the, the, the fun ender ending is like definitely the right one for yeah. a movie like this. Yeah. Um, and so as far as the future of Get Out, uh, Jordan Peele was asked if Universal wanted him to do a sequel. And he said, of course they did. It's the <laughs> first thing they said. Let's do a sequel. But honestly, I'm open to it. I love the project, but I won't do a sequel just for a cash grab. If it's right, yeah. if it feels good, if it feels like I can beat the original. I'll do it. And I yeah. think that that is the right way to handle it for every yeah. every filmmaker who has a vision. I mean, holding on to that, I think, is the most important thing and, and being true to yourself and, and what it meant to you in that moment. So, Oh, 100%. Yeah, because, like, you don't want to, like, worst case scenario, this becomes, like, a, 
you know, direct to streaming franchise with Get Out Ooh. Three and Get Out Four. Oh, you're boy. like, you don't want that because that happens to a lot of series, and like some of them are fun. Like I think the Child Play series works very well as like direct to video and direct to streaming. Yeah, but for movies like these, that like it's the exception. <laughs> yeah, it's the exception, not definitely not the rule. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so so that's I, I think it's all great, and now. We've reached the point where both of us are going to summarize why this is the best horror movie ever made. And so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you kick it off for us. Cool. For, for my money, you know, it, it works. this movie works in two different ways. One, it's a great broad horror film. Very well shot, meticulously written, great performances, great sound design. All of that stuff works. The thing that really makes it my favorite horror film or one of my favorites is that it also has a duality to it, much like the theme of the movie, is that like people, particularly black people, are going to watch this movie and come away with a completely different experience than people that aren't black, um, particularly black black Americans. And like, you know, you know, a lot of horror is built around the reveal about like going into the unexpected and going to the unknown. And what's interesting about this is that like black people watching this know what's going to happen when they go into it. They may not see the mind swapping element of it, but like from the jump, they know they know not to trust anyone that's in this family. And it's interesting watching how Jordan Peele was able to, to move on that and make things be particularly horrific to black or scary to black people that may be, may not be as scary to other people. Like just the interaction with the cop at the very beginning is scary to like a lot of black folks, like being thrust into a party with a bunch of like rich, you know, waspy people that you don't know is, is already scary. Like we've already touched on it. The idea of like being gaslit essentially while and not being able to like have your voice heard much like being in the second place is very scary. So to me, like this film, it came out at a perfect time. Like it encapsulates all the, the great things that I enjoy in film. And also like, I love that it wasn't afraid to take very big swings, not just like comedy wise, but also genre wise. This movie, I think towards the third act takes a very different switch. Like it becomes a movie that's a little bit more stylized and a thing and in a way that I think a lot of sort of like larger American horror movies aren't used to doing. I think they, they follow a very similar format or a very um, a very set of gu- a set of guidelines that we're used to seeing in horror movies. And like once we get into that basement and we have everything is symmetrical and like it's golden yeah. and it's like well lit. And there's like a weird 1940s TV like all of that is so heightened and surreal that you don't get a lot of that. And I, I from, from my perspective and like large temple horror movies, especially from, you know, Blumhouse. No, I, I totally agree. And to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because on top of all the usual stuff about how the cast is incredible because they are and how it looks incredible because it does. I think that this movie is intensely empathetic. This mm. movie really asks you to put yourself in the shoes of Chris And I think not only does it ask you to do that, it asks people who are the perpetrators of the violence Mm -hmm. to do that. It it Mm -hmm. says it it holds a mirror up to white liberals and it says, look at look at this, understand what this is trying to say. And the fact that it's able to do that and on at least some level get through to people in terms of like it was a success. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, just the fact that it, it it is able to do that well, and then the rewatchability of it, the fact that it's mm-hmm. an incredible, incredible horror movie going through the first time when you're being surprised by everything, but then going back to it and understanding how it's leading you to this path and seeing mm-hmm. how much is jam-packed into every line of dialogue. 
it, it's incredible. And that's why, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made. Uh, Cody, I want to thank you so much for coming on, dude. This was dude. Thanks for having me. Anytime. If you want to talk Xeno too, let me know. I'd love to come back. Oh hell yeah! Well, so why don't you tell the people where they can find you if they want to uh, check out more of your stuff? Yeah, check me out across all social media platforms at Yay for Zig. I host this really fun podcast called The Dark Weeb with another funny guy named Bertie Reed. We talk about anime and video games and comic books and manga. Um, and we have with the angle of being like just black nerds, and that's really fun. Uh, that's that's it for me. Other than that, you know, check out Robot Chicken. Like I, I wrote for that, and uh, uh, it was a really really fun being on the show, man. Like I really like, really dig this. Thanks, man. Look, hey, I had an absolute blast having you on. As far as my plugs, people can uh, just go to Little Horror PHL. It has a lot of the links to stuff, uh, merch, uh, stuff like that. But uh, I'm on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. So if you want to reach out on there and let us know what you think about Get Out, I'm really interested to hear what people thought about this one, if it struck as big a chord with you guys as it did with us. So uh, let us know. And that is pretty much it. So bye. <laughs>